to the Biosystems Podcast. Brought to you by A and E Collective. This episode Dark Mycology. The way in which most people talk about fungus and mycelium and mushrooms is very similar in a way to how we talk about the internet. And I think there is something that we've had in pop culture, you know, it's like strange Hello and welcome to the first episode of Biosystems. I'm Lucy Watkins and I'm a member of A&E Collective in Glasgow. I'm here with Annie Lopez, although sadly not in person because of lockdown restrictions, um, but we'll get there. Um, how are you doing today? Hey Lucy, I'm fine, thank you. I guess I'm a bit anxious about coming out of lockdown and dealing with the so-called new normal. But I have to say, I've been really enjoying observing the seagulls from my window. And I guess that sense of curiosity and like magic when the chicks are coming out of the eggs and flying for the first time, it's kind of one of the things that has kept me going during lockdown. Although I do have to say this <laughs> seagull sex is a bit unromantic. Yeah, I hear them all the time. It's pretty crazy. Bedtime especially. Um, and whenever I'm on the phone to anyone, everyone just assumes that I'm outside because they're just literally so loud. So we're here to introduce and discuss why we're bringing you Biosystems as a podcast. Yeah, this time during lockdown has given us really a, quite a unique opportunity to review all the material we've accumulated over the past couple of years. It's been really nice to look through everything we've done and then also distill it for the website update as well. Um, we came across the recordings of Biosystems and felt like the discussions were all still so relevant. Um, and then it would be great to share these with anyone interested in the topics and then also anyone that couldn't make it to the session in person. Yeah, so... At the core of Biosystems, there was uh, this sense of community and coming together to promote a collaborative learning practice. So we thought now more than ever, we felt like we wanted to share these discussions with you as a reminder that although some of us are perhaps still feeling a bit physically distanced, we are still part of a community. So as Lucy mentioned, Biosystems started in 2018 uh, as a reading group series that served as both an informal seminar and kind of ecological clinic. So Biosystems brought together people from different backgrounds, including literature, art and science, to discuss key texts on themes that concern our damaged planet. So the recording we're about to hear is from the first episode that took place on the 24th of October in 2018 at the Glasgow Zine Library's original location on Nicholson Street. For the first session, we had the pleasure of hosting the artist Rebecca Gill and the poet Mike Saunders. You'll soon hear more about them in their introductions during the podcast. Yeah, it was a real pleasure to have them with us that evening. And also I have to say that leading the discussion, we had a A&E's Maria Slipmere, who gracefully took us on an educational mushroom trip. As a group, we are fascinated, intrigued, and as we also say, somehow scared about mushrooms, these weird creatures that share much of their DNA with humans. So we chose the mushroom at the end of the world by Anna Singh as a starting point of these discussions to explore how mushrooms provide perhaps literal and metaphoric examples for assembling communities out of capitalist ruins. Yeah, so here it is. 
We hope you find the discussion as nourishing as it felt at the time. start um, with like a little poem because I was thinking about resources to bring together for tonight and um, because it's obviously the nature of Singh's book is that it's very interdisciplinary um, and it seems to have been picked up by people I don't know about all you guys but I'm assuming you're from so many different backgrounds and practices um, and one of the things that I was sent was this collection by Sarah Watkinson and um, she's written a poem which is called the World Wide Web, and I don't know if any of you have heard of this term, but it's kind of about how mycelium, which is kind of like the underground element of a mushroom, um, communicates in a way akin to the internet as a sort of like networked thing going on. Um, and this, she kind of wrote this poem in, in relation to another poet called Philip Gross, who has this really long poem called Mold Music, and I think it's from a collection called something like The Love Songs of Carbon or something. It's kind of an interesting concept, but I thought it'd be fun to start with a short little poem. The Wood Wide Web. Underfoot, sharers in the earth, with one tree or another, they grow nets to catch salvage, scatterings of wood, washings of foliage, store and return salts for a fee paid in summer sap. They whisper their way into roots and become chimera. Mycorrhiza, rufous, violaceous, melanized, down in the dark. Stinkhorns, earth stars, deceivers, chanterelles, their spore launches come up in their own time in warm damp. They deal us whatever helps them. Disgust, death, delicatessen, musk. And so that was like an interesting poem because it kind of raises some stuff about energy and interaction and interaction that we might talk about in relation to Anna's book. Um, so basically today we've asked two people to come and be part of our kind of panel. Um, we've got Rebecca Gill, who is an artist, and we've got Mike Saunders, who's a writer. I was wondering if you wanted to say like a quick little thing about your own practice and, and what you work on. Um, just a little, to give everyone an idea of what this is. Um, so I'm in my final year at GSA, I'm on the painting course um, as an undergraduate. And um, I think my work sort of is concerned with primarily interaction and collaboration. I think that's really important for me. Um, <clears throat> so I sort of work across a few different disciplines, including film and sound and installation, um, but also biotechnologies, and including mycelium. Um, I've worked with a few scientists in the past um, in different instances and on different topics, including renewable energies and um, the legacy of waste after uh, Fukushima. And yeah, I hope to keep doing more of that in the future because I think it's a really important. Uh, intersection um yeah i'm yeah i'm kind of primarily a writer um i write poems mostly but also um some longer form work um i i don't think i've written anything specifically about mushrooms ever which um makes you feel like a bit of a fraud here um <laughs> but i've always had a um uh all of my writing has always had a kind of 
it's always been concerned with a kind of theoretical background. And so when things like uh, Anna Singh's book came along, um, it was really useful for me because I like to write about um, the natural world and how it intersects or, you know, problematic term natural world and how it intersects with um, what we would describe as society or a cultural world. I wrote a book about the language of financialization and how loads of the terms kind of borrow from phrases that we would consider natural or things to do with water or sonification. And then, I mean, the project I've been working on more recently is to do with um, the Ordnance Survey maps, the first of which was of uh, Scotland in 1747. And so there's a lot of interesting things there to do with networks and maps and what an original map might be. So mushrooms kind of came into that for me. I also just, yeah, I like to <laughs> do reading groups and things. And we've done a reading group before on Mushroom at the End of the World. Um, I think it's a really, I think it's a great book. <laughs> so I'm just going to pitch a few questions to Mike and Rebecca. But if there's any point that you, you have something to chime in with, feel free to um, chime in in this section as well. Um, so the first, I guess a lot of these questions are kind of about the abstract stuff in the book, but also how it relates to your practice and how it's shaped, um, the way that you read things. Um, so my first question was, I guess, about how reading about mycology has maybe shaped your approach to critical discourse. So in terms of how you relate to sources, so you're talking about the audience survey maps, um, but also how you choose to sort of disseminate ideas. So um, how you actually like reflect on your process of there's maybe something like routing or cross pollination or interaction. Um, so if you could talk a bit about how it's shaped your approach to, to other source texts and maybe how we can use this term diversity in relation to that and maybe relate these kind of micro scale things to the mushrooms to the broader things you're looking at, like finance capitalism or globalization, the Anthropocene as such. Um, yeah. It's um, a big question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think, well, one of the, I mean, interesting things that is brought up, like right at the beginning of the book, is the idea that the, uh, not mushroom production per se, but Matsutaki production mm-hmm. is like, uh, it, it's impossible for it to be co-opted completely by capitalist production because it's it's it, yeah they can't seem to find a way to industrially process the mushrooms that's like that's a really kind of important and interesting idea um to have this network that we, it, one in one way we kind of compare it to the internet but i think that, i think that's useful but i think there's also kind of a problem there because i mean the the idea of a mushroom network isn't like inherently anti-capitalist. You know, it's, you could describe like the internet as it exists today as like, you know, all of these, you've got a whole um, mycelium network. And then, I mean, the, the fruiting bodies could be things <coughs> like, you know, Google and, and mm-hmm. Facebook who have found a kind of uh, perfect situation under which they can flourish. And then they're, you know, in a way, continuing like a mushroom metaphor they're kind of 
you know, using enzymes to like break down the kind of complicated networks into very simple interactions mm -hmm. that they can then kind of monetize or, or, you know, or to use in, in ways both um, kind of useful and nefarious for all of the other parts of the network. Um, but yeah, I mean, saying that the, the fact that there is a potential for that network to be unreproducible by capitalism is, is the kind of important an interesting part of that, I suppose. Um, and so there's things like, um, I don't know, like, so, you know, with the zine library and stuff, I mean, there's a way in which it is a dissemination of, of texts, but it's, um, you know, explicitly outside of those modes of kind of profit and production. And that that's the kind of thing that really, um, excites me about the prospect i suppose and, and that's how it works for me on a kind of conceptual level is is that there is a uh, there's an example there from the from the world in which a successful dominating network i mean yeah mycelium and fungus are yeah you know, literally everywhere um and so you know one of the most kind of successful networks ever produced is one that is potentially a way of, of imagining um, a different type of network that doesn't destroy or feed off and and completely consume the things that it's working with. You know that you know a lot of the mycelial networks are um, symbiotic, um, and that's uh, yeah. I don't know. That's something to kind of cling on to. Um, yeah. So it's been really important. Like there's when I was doing the. Ordnance survey work, there's just one thing for an example. There's um, in the flow country and kind of um, up in the uh, north east, um, the Caithness and Th Sutherland, there was a lot of um, forestry uh, practices that went on there in the kind of late Thatcher eras where um, uh, people would um, plant forests so that they could obviously, you know, process them, but there was like massive tax breaks that you could have as a production of, uh, as a timber producer. Um, and they kind of destroyed a lot of this original marshland, um, not original, but it, you know, they destroyed a lot of the marshland and destroyed so many of the uh, existing cultures there. Um, but now um, they have kind of realized probably too late that this was, disastrous thing to do mm -hmm. but one of the um optimistic things about that situation is that they've now cut all of the trees down into the and kind of laid them into these into the bogs uh, and so the only kind of hope for that landscape to potentially return to some measure of what it was before is things like moss mm -hmm. and fungus kind of working together to uh completely break down the uh yeah, the, the, the truth that were not there before and try and kind of return some kind of balance to it. Yeah, the idea that it's actually been recognised by, I guess, politicians or, or business people um, as like an act in itself, like things like the moss are actually being legitimated in that sense. So it's kind of the micro pollinating macro, yeah. Becca, do you have any thoughts on how it's affected your metaphoric and actual idea of how you approach your sources and stuff. Yeah, definitely. I think um, this idea of symbiosis is really important. Um, the fact that mycelium networks latch on to things like plants and trees and um, 
create a relationship between like that and their own networks mm. and other plants and um through like carbon transfer is a really interesting idea for me um and it goes into what Singh talks about about contamination and collaboration yeah. um again like i rely heavily on interaction and collaboration both within audience participation but also within like the creative process and um speaking to people across disciplines in terms of science and arts and technology and stuff um i think also with some of the work i've done with mycelium uh that was a collaboration with somebody um called harriet she's a song from my course um and our our, our primary concern with the material was the way that it does co uh contaminate and it does um like you have to you have to form a sort of relationship with it and more often than not it will go wrong and it will yeah. mold and mm. it will um sort of like water it fills the container that you give it and then it finds ways to to leak and yeah. grow beyond that um so i think yeah that was really important to us and finding um finding intersections with that as like a conceptual idea but also being able to um to apprehend that in our of like material research and get beyond those uh, problems of contamination. Mm. Maybe that's interesting segue into this idea of disturbance because you mentioned sort of failure and how you have to almost build that into your practice from the start. Um, I heard something about that. Yeah, because she talks, I think Singh talks quite usefully about disturbance is kind of, we, when we think of, when we think of, um, yeah, so it basically ties into her idea of landscapes as active. So it's getting away from this sort of picturesque view of a static landscape that you look upon into something that actually is almost looking at this, she calls it radical tools for decentering human hubris, um, which is like a classic thing. Um, and I guess sort of it's this thinking with landscape and acknowledging that we're actively part of its temporality um, and shaping this sort of idea of a world. But also this process inevitably involves like rupture, upheaval, or what Singh calls disturbance. And she might I think she mentions things like crop failings or flash floods. Um so so you sort of mentioned the thing about the um the you know like the deforestation and that would be a disturbance. But then also there's this idea of like natural disturbance versus human, and that's obviously a problematic distinction. Um you've got examples of it being extreme, like Trump. And Aberdeen golf course where he sort of promised he'd never you know ruin the dune system because they had this really unique dune system on the beach but of course he just bulldozed it all and ruined it so that's obviously like directly to do with like capital and profit um but there's also sort of things to do with like sort of micro disturbances within like a food chain or like a particular virus um so I don't know did you have any thoughts on on how we might deem I guess works of art and poetics in this kind of active sense and how you might build how do you actually build this failure or how does that play out in um, the way that you approach these things i think um yeah i really liked what she was saying about um well what you were saying about art and poetics is like a kind of landscape and allowing for rupture within that um and i enjoyed what Singh was saying about spores mm -hmm. and how um they can sort of run away with the uh like genetics of the uh, the mycelium and carry it miles and miles and miles yeah. and then uh, let it rupture and, and reproduce somewhere completely different and I think there might be opportunities for thinking about 
art and creative practices is that for science mm -hmm. um going back to what i was saying about like the intersections of art and science and how those disciplines can contribute to each other um because sometimes sometimes scientists overlook things that could be really fruitful and um rich terrain uh but sometimes if you let creative practices run away with those things it can be like uh, yeah. opportunities for far-reaching dissemination of ideas and um particularly in in traversing like the gap between scientific practices and the, and the public um which is like obviously a really important uh, uh gap to traverse yeah for sure um yeah okay. yeah thank you mm. um what, what was the question yeah um yeah, I guess just like your thoughts on the idea of disturbance. Oh yeah, I remember. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, it's uh, yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I think one of the things that um, poetry is often very good at is like um, not providing um, any answers uh, and and you know kind of working within um, contradictions. And uh, yeah, and the kind of um, mess where where things don't really kind of work out logically, which is kind of exactly what Singh describes as the kind of breeding grounds for um, good um, Matsutake production. There's a bit in this ch third chapter um, where she says, uh, Matsutake commerce does not occur in some imagined time before scalability. It is dependent on scalability in ruins. Many pickers in Oregon are displaced from industrial economies and the forest itself is the remains of scalability work. Now those things are, um, it's obviously like, you know, there's capitalism involved in there and industrialization and that there's the same, uh, it speaks to a kind of contradiction on the left of like, especially in the UK um, being kind of, uh, against denationalization and deindustrialization um uh, you know for a certain time but obviously i don't think now anyone would argue that we should reopen any mines or anything mm -hmm. but it was like uh so there's this really specific point in which you know it's the what is what is good for um uh the kind of radical perspective and what is good for the continuation of and capitalism like unfortunately like intersect at some point and it's funny that that's like exactly the point at which these um mushrooms flourish so in some way that's the and it's, and it's the same point in which like poetry does its best work really yeah is that when it's not trying to describe a kind of clear um outcome or, or describe like um you know something straightforward happening but but in the way that it can um, mess around with language and, and syntax and diction and form to find something that um, describes more accurately a kind of mess between all of these things happening. Mm. Um, yeah, and then maybe there's a question there of, um, I guess, two things sort of accessibility. So who's who's reading it, and it is is poetry that's difficult and and a mess, like harder for that to disseminated widely versus sort of storytelling um, and how poetry can do storytelling but I think one of the things that was probably celebrated by this book so much is 
um, that Singh uses narrative a lot and she's, she talks about how she kind of has her abstract ideas but then she has these stories about um, the, the things that are going on locally. So she had this, this research team that she managed to get out and everyone got time to do their own research but they were also working together. Um, and a lot of it was just her interviewing local people and pickers, distributors. Um, so yeah, I'm kind of interested in, in this question of how storytelling and or poetry um, and indeed art practice of whatever kind can, can sort of tell narratives and particularly ones that are about like mar marginalia or you know precarity because a lot of this is about people whose lives are kind of on the edge like the the livelihoods of these pickers depends on like the seasons and sort of the fact that these mushrooms aren't going to die out in a rot overnight um and maybe i'm thinking after you said that of i think amy evans has this poetry piece about called soundings which is kind of about like the refugee crisis and it's sort of it's a sound performance so she she sort of uses all these tricks with like stuttering vowels and kind of picks apart the language that's often used to describe and it kind of points out how the discourse shapes our whole perspective on um, this and it is kind of giving space to precarity um, so yeah have you thought anything about that like the idea of like margins and storytelling and how I might or how you do storytelling in your own practice how you think you yeah I think um Worlding in that sense can be like a really useful way of mm -hmm. uh, allowing somebody to step into a story or into an experience. Um, I was listening to um, an interview with Mass Cunningham and John Cage and they were talking about their collaboration together and John Cage calls it, uh, well he says that it's less like an object and more like the weather because you can't see the, the boundaries and it has like multiple lives after that initial encounter. Yeah. Um, and I think installation can be, and any kind of process-based practice really can be a very useful way of allowing somebody to or, or giving somebody the conditions through which a story or an idea can emerge mm. um, and I think that's a really important way of doing it rather than just telling perhaps somebody yeah. the whole thing up front allowing people the opportunity to learn as they um, traverse the work or process as well and also like um, in things like global media, Adam Curtis talked mm. about this at a free talk, he talked about um, the idea of fragmentation in global media and in, um, not being able to discern like narratives from it and how that seems quite strange for global media because it's supposed to be just like an objective report of events but actually we need stories in order to be able to see mm. how things are happening and how, how events connect and also who's holding the power within those um, situations too. So I definitely think, yeah, mm. uh, like he, he says as well that being free is great, but when you're free, you're also alone. And when things get badly, that can mean that you're very scared and that you don't listen. So uh, stories are very powerful in that yeah. sense. And Singh uses them very, uh, very well. Mm. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, no, I, yeah, uh, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's like an interesting, like, there is, there's one, one of the things that I found like slightly problematic about Singh's writing though was the, um, when she does talk about precarity, um, it's very, so there's a bit in the first chapter where she says, um, what if, as I'm suggesting, precarity is the condition of our time, or to put it another way, what if our time is right for sensing precarity? What if precarity 
indeterminacy and what we imagine is trivial are the center of the systematicity we seek. Um, like that's, it's it's incredibly important to acknowledge that that you know and the the, the you know the the amount of precarity that is in like that seems to be the case now rather than um, in more recent previous times. It's a badly formulated sentence, um, but almost, yeah, two thousand eight. Yeah, yeah, but it's um, but it's also I mean it's important to. Obviously, this is not necessarily her job, but it's important to talk about ways to break out of that precarity for yeah. everyone involved. Um, um, yeah, I mean, I really um, like what you said, Rebecca, about you know allowing people a way into work in that way to kind of give them. Um, so, in, I mean, but in some in some senses, that if you've got a, a narrative, a kind of strict linear narrative, that it can. Uh, be a kind of it, it can be a block to that in the way that you know Adam Curtis might describe freedom is you can create a very specific narrative about how you got that freedom and how you deserve that freedom and that's a very kind of exclusatory narrative so if you are going to have an idea of narrative it has to be um, complicated to include as many people as possible otherwise it's not there's no, there's no kind of idea of, of truth there or justice, and there needs to be some kind of so narrative. Yeah, I mean, it is I'm talking myself in circles, but um, yeah, it's like yeah, it's really, really important. But um, the ways in which we can describe narrative don't have to be as, as linear as we might imagine. Um, I think that is something that she kind of covers as well there, and that is the idea of. You know, that's the, the grand metaphor of the mushroom is a, is a way where it's not one thing growing to one specific point. Yeah. It's some it's like, a, you know, a whole density of just being like ready yeah. <laughs> and like aware of a, of, a of, of, you know, possibility that that you can maybe grow at some point. Um, so, you know, I don't know, in a way that could be kind of a pessimistic narrative, but it's also, you know, if you have that strength of the network, um, then you know that, you know, at some point you're going to be able to break out of it. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Kind of earlier we were talking about, I guess, how it allows for sort of potentials and these might, might be kind of about chance or surprise and how in a way it's kind of like a queer thing because it isn't it isn't like teleological it doesn't have like a goal point necessarily it's the way that it kind of spreads in a kind of in a way that is about care and stuff but it isn't necessarily about like reproducing in a linear way for a purpose it's kind of and and things can happen in this sort of like food chain if you want to call it that um of the network um which kind of takes me on to there's this sort of interesting question of like well in freeze um I think Rebecca, she brought us to our attention, um, Gary Zhang, um, he says that by and large artistic strategies and the scarcity oriented economy that undergirds them have remained doggedly bound to objects and surfaces. Um, so do you see mycology as a conceptual model that might resist this obsession with objects and surfaces? So I'm thinking in philosophy right now you have things like object oriented ontology, but then you also have sort of assemblage theories um, 
and they're kind of about enmeshment, but there's also a sense of um, other ones that are about how objects are kind of unique in themselves. And even though they're enmeshed, they also like withdraw. There's this risk, this idea of like recalcitrance. Um, so I was wondering if you had any thoughts on this idea of how those theories are either productive or problematic and where mycology might fit in. Do you see it as something that kind of combine both but avoid the problems of if that makes sense so if for like I guess thinking politically but um also in terms of just our personal sense of grappling like the world around us in this sort of ecological condition um yeah just sort of objects versus surfaces. yeah I think um uh mycelium in particular um as like the subterranean vegetative part of the mushroom offers a really interesting um metaphor that you touched on earlier about it relating to networks and the internet and stuff like that um purely for it i always see like the mushroom as such as like the the surplus like the the fruit the the apple of the tree but uh, yeah um and the real grit happens in this network of like uh carbon communications and electrical currents and stuff like that and i think um possibly what uh, Gary Zhang is referring to in art in particular is the trend towards like the slipperiness of Silicon Valley aesthetics mm, yeah. um, and I always think of that in terms of like these illusions of our devices and stuff and like the miniaturization of devices and yeah. how those user illusions don't allow you to engage with the networks and systems that actually enable both your use of those um, devices but also the, uh, the way that information is Fast and controlled within those um, networks, and so I think my students are really interesting. Uh, not a cautionary tale, but a, a consideration in that sense. Um, and I, yeah, I suppose you could consider it like I, I'm not too familiar with um, object-oriented ontology, yeah. um, but I suppose you could consider it in the context of like of Timothy Morton's hype objects. Yeah. Um, in that it is literally the biggest organism on earth yeah um and it resists specificity of like spatial temporality mm-hmm. as well so um yeah i i like that idea of withdrawal as well i think in sort of like the john cage quote like it alludes mm-hmm. it um yeah it alludes our understanding of it but um yeah maybe in the context of a systems approach it would allow us to think more constructively about where power is in in terms of like user illusions and mm. digital networks and stuff and how we can uh, interact with them. Yeah, I don't know. It's very fuzzy. Yeah, it's <laughs> funny that when you bring up hyper objects, it is true because it is something that you can't quite access as a totality. You only you only really see the mushroom, or you can cut out bits of mycelium. And I guess mm. it must be interesting for yourself, as someone that kind of has access to like scientists that are actually getting to work with these materials and and how that affects your sense of scale, about this, you know, knowing that this is kind of this recalcitrant underground entity that's happening. Um, and, and I think there is something like a turn in pop culture, you know, and you think of like Stranger Things and you think of all that sort of the viscous, like entangled, I don't know, it makes me think of, there's, there's something going on there about sort of fear of this other thing, but also the nourishment there and stuff. So it's kind of, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the way in which most people talk about fungus and mycelium and mushrooms is very similar in a way to how we talk about the internet because it's, it is a, yeah, a rejection or a ignoring those networks. So with the internet, you know, you, you talk about the cloud and you talk about wireless and it's all about kind of trying to pull the curtain, uh, you know, away from people seeing the very incredibly physical parts of how the internet is exists you know and you know it's data centers and it's it's cables that run all the way around some countries it's you know when you connect something someone a, you know a new place to the internet a guy has to grab a cable out the sea in a diving gear and bring it out to the beach you know it's super physical um and and it's the same way that we kind of talk about mushrooms really as we t- we you know we think of the the fruiting body as the as it whereas um you know like you're saying Rebecca, all of the important work and, and the most and the largest part of it happens underground um so in that way i mean it's super useful just to think of just yeah just to bring the idea of mycelium into the conversation because then it and it does allow you with things like the internet to start talking about who owns those cables and like what and and what and how they work and the fact that you can you know just completely even though you know it's the the common conception is that um the internet is kind of ephemeral and and can get out if it needs to i mean the complete opposite is true you know there's some sections of africa in particular that are completely it's one company that owns like the the entire cable around the coast so can just switch that off um so in that way i mean i suppose mushrooms are more um mobile than the thing that we are kind of comparing them with there um yeah because yeah that's really interesting it's kind of like almost a parallel with how we're coming to notice things like offshoring with oil like you think of oil as again this sort of fluid thing that's always available but we're actually needing to realize that most of the work goes on this sort of vague other place like offshore and it's kind of is it part of a a nation state or is it in the ocean who owns the ocean you know and maybe the fact that we get to that maybe through sort of infrastructural metaphors is similar to how we're getting to realizing the internet's materiality through these physical metaphors of um of like mycelium which is really interesting because it is a sort of way out of abstraction or using that productively um which kind of yeah, there was so the John Cage quote. I don't know if this is actually in the book, I can't remember now. But um, he says it's useless to pretend to know mushrooms; they escape your erudition. Um, yeah, cool. Um, so I think the interesting thing about mushrooms is that they resist, like like Cage's music. Indeed, it's all about space. They resist a lot of our logical strictures. They seem to embody this radically other sense of time and sociality. Um, for instance, the fact that some mushrooms apparently take literally years to have sex. Um, so I was wondering, how do we make room for this mystery and how do we critically respect it and respond to it? It's kind of stuff we've touched on a little bit already, but what do you think about mystery and how, how can you, especially if you work with scientists who probably yeah. don't like mysteries very much. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe yeah. they do, maybe that's, well, that's kind of what they start from, but. Yeah, I think um, there, there has to be mystery because science starts with observation and it starts with like being able to formulate the questions that allow you to to move further um i think the 
the way that uh, Singh talks about smell in that mm, in relation yeah, to that's yeah. really nice because um, it and she's right it, it really is something that like is peripheral and it um, yeah escapes our ability to sort of uh, materialize it but it, it does bring up so many connections to memory and to um, to place and to time and stuff and uh, Sorry, what was the same question yeah. again? <laughs> I got oh, a bit mystery, lost. Very mysterious. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, Do you find that um, in your work you have to? It's a bit like what we were saying about poetry. It's, it's able to like navigate mess. Do you find that you consciously like want to leave gaps almost, or like respect something rather than trying to figure it out? How do you, you know? Do you ever deliberately think I don't want to figure that out, or? I don't know if exactly. I ever think uh, consciously like, yeah. that I want to leave things to figure out, but it definitely does allow room to come back to things. And I think in terms of assemblages, it's nice to be able to move through something and then um, decide later on with, with hindsight and with new experiences to contribute to it that there's something more that you can do with it or something better that you can mm-hmm. do with it as well. Um, so, yeah, mystery... Uh, especially with things like biotechnologies, which are still uh, very much burgeoning medium, media. Um, they, and with, again, that idea of like science starting with observation and um, being able to formulate questions, I think it's uh, important to allow that to be patchy, yes. as puts it, um, for now, if only to come back at a later date with, with yeah. Yeah, it's like, it's like taking a slower approach. Mm. It's also really nice, um, yeah, when Katie says like the mushrooms kind of escape your erudition, it's it's nice to have something um, where the the expectation of you kind of learning about mushrooms isn't like mastery of that knowledge almost, mm-hmm. you know, that they, I think she mentions that there's, you know, we've, we know about 100,000 mushroom species, but we know that there are, you know, 300,000 or something. And it's just like a nice, with most other um, disciplines, it's like you can only be a kind of expert or something once you know all of those to know. But with mushrooms, like Cage says, it's there's um, the more you kind of figure out about uh, identifying them, the less competent you become. Yeah. Because um, So it's just, it's a nice kind of backwards... Um, approach to what would be described, you know, traditionally as knowledge or mm-hmm. um, or progress, um, and it's 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 a nice opportunity to have that pressure relieved, um, and you know, and it works well with like Deleuze and Guattari, you know, kind of jumped on it with their their idea of like the you know rhizomatic mm-hmm. and things, and just that using these metaphors and words and and changing what they have traditionally meant to create something that is much more uh, open to whoever wants to use those words or those stories or that um, potential theoretical narrative to replace it with something else. Um, There's a lovely, I was watching something the other day and it mentioned the fact that there's like a version of the Eden story um, where uh, the figures, so the Adam and Eve figures, don't eat of the 
apple tree um, they eat of like a mushroom that's growing at the bottom of it and then that's hence the kind of creation of religion um, because it, you know it was a psychedelic or something so that, you know and there's like there's just um, lovely ways in which using the kind of inexhaustible knowledge of mushrooms can really open up fishes in in very kind of strict or orthodox narratives of the world yeah it's like a softening or something it, it reminds me of what morton says about high projects being like the more you know the bigger they seem and that kind of classic thing and they, they force you to confront your your lameness as he calls it as a human that doesn't necessarily mean you're paralyzed it just means a, re- a recognition of i guess like human hubris and, and getting away from that progress narrative that's quite like technocapitalist or um so my last question before the break is about scale and scalability um because Singh kind of talks a bit in a kind of critical context of the problem with scalability is that you can kind of lose diversity if you try and scale something up. Um, and she talks about how scales don't necessarily happen in nature. I don't know if you have any thoughts about that, just um, in general <coughs> terms of, of as a response to the text, or but, but also if you have examples of what you understand scalability to mean in your own research and otherwise. Yeah, I think because... Um... Something that I always hear in when talking to scientists is this idea of scalability and be, being able to take like microscopic instances of um, uh, like say open plasma like cut and paste stuff and being able to scale that up to say developing ways that you can treat cancer with mm-hmm. that um, and that's a really big problem in like their process of thinking. I think that really pervades how they you know, approach, because I think when you're so entrenched in that um, microscopic scale of research where just doing like an open plasma cut and paste takes weeks and months and um, yeah, being able to then like have the, uh, I don't know what it's called when you, like the, <laughs> um, the, the zooming in or something or, or zooming out, like zooming taking, out. yeah, yeah. Taking, <laughs> yeah, being able to, yeah, being able to see how that might um, contribute in any way to anything. Um, can just be like so so disheartening yeah Um, and I think being able to keep sight of that is but that's something that um like studying mycology is so is so nice to uh consider with because you can move from uh like yeah microscopic carbon transfers to the two and a half what is it miles of the mycelium networks in Oregon like Mm. I, yeah, I think it's a nice uh, lesson in that. Yeah. I mean, it is like yeah. Even there, there is there is scalability in mycelium, you know, uh, and even in in ways where it's impossible to scale production of you know uh, matsutake, for example, it is used in you know so much other forms of. Uh, what we would, yeah, you might call kind of, you know, scalable industrialization. So it's used in production of citric acids on, you know, on a kind of fundamentally massive scale, like all of the, any kind of acids that is citric that you have in like, you know, can of Coke or whatever is produced through um, fungi. Um, And, you know, it's used for like so many other things that are like almost the antithesis of what she's talking about here, resisting 
at scalability. Um, but yeah, I mean, but she also importantly says that scalability is not in that is not always bad. Um, but in that, in this specific narrative, it obviously is the the fact that it can't scale is like super important. Um, I mean, later on in the book, she she talks about the fact that it does, you know, the the Metsutake moves, it does move back into um, like commodification through capitalism, the way it's it's made into a uh, a single tradable commodity. But then on the other side, once it reaches Japan, it, it's then separated out into, um, you know, singular luxury goods. Um, and so, even though at this point where she's where they're where they're um, uh, finding these mushrooms in this Oregon forest, and there's a lot of people who have been displaced from um, one types of society or industry to be there, it does. You know, capital always <laughs> manages yeah. to go, put its put its fingers back in the bowl, and like it does, it does get you know kind of extrapolated back out into that world and and this part of it and it's obviously excellent that she's been able to like tell that hidden story of something that has been co-opted through kind of um like completely anonymous import export system to enter into the world of capital as a you know as a luxury good mm-hmm. um yeah, so it's just, yeah, it's slightly, I mean, the, yeah, it's just super complicated and like, and interesting to talk about and scalability. Um, but it's something that, you know, one of the main things as well she talks about in these chapters is that idea of collaboration and contamination and stuff. And so talking about scalability in a kind of group like this, um, to do with mushrooms, is like the only re- way that this text can kind of be a, a an interesting good thing because it kind of gets those contradictions out into the open yeah yeah how do you hold it and i think there's sort of questions about temporality in there which maybe we can explore as a group after the break but um yeah there's definitely it's a sort of fraught time i think because you understand it in different disciplines like architecture or science or um like my immediate thought was architecture um and you think of like blueprint stuff so it's so it's sort of important to have groups like this that hopefully bring different perspectives together cool so so we eat some mushroom powder yeah so we have like a little break um and we've got lots of mushroom patty so that was the end of the first part of the event uh and then we had the chance to eat the mushroom patty that lucy and marie had made for us Oh my God, the famous mushroom pate, the industrial scale of production at Marie's house was a bit insane. Uh, I, I can remember feeling a bit nervous about it not being enough, but then when it all came together, I just thought we've got a lot of pate here. Um, but I have to say the food is a big part of Biosystems because it makes the event feel more welcoming. And it also just gives us the chance to experiment with a different medium, using food as a different vehicle for communicating the ideas. Yeah, it also gives us a chance to like um, try one of your new recipes. So that's always a good mm. add-on. Um, yeah, I like how the conversation really expanded across so many different topics, kind of a bit like the sport of the mushroom bit. 
and how there are so many different analogies and metaphors that came up with things like the physicality of the internet network, for example. Um, I remember being in the room listening to Mike describing this like really thick cable coming out of the sea. And, and I think since then my relationship to the internet has kind of changed. But also this idea of like the mushroom as a network that gives life instead of destructing. Yeah, it was quite a good reminder that we'll never really know the full expanse of what mycelium has to offer and that there's, there is some otherworldly force which has got an element of control in our world. Um, it's pretty crazy. The more you try to understand and learn about mushrooms, the less you really know. And it relates to what Maria was saying about Timothy Borton's hyper objects and how the closer you get to them, the bigger they become, really. Yeah, and I found fascinating how Rebecca talks about mycelium as a material that she had previously used in in one of her in her work, and how she had come into she had to come into terms with this idea of like contamination, but also collaborate with the material. And she uses this really beautiful analysis of like water filling a container and then finding its way out and leaking. So I thought that was like a really beautiful moment. Yeah, it's quite important to leave room for external factors to take control sometimes. And as both Rebecca and Mike mentioned, it's the way we formulate our questions and ideas and that in order to continue to learn and expand, we need to think in a bit more of a rhizomatic way. And of course, it keeps your curiosity going as well. Totally. Uh, we're going to listen to the second part now of the event in which the audience gets a chance to engage in an open discussion with people that maybe they otherwise wouldn't encounter. So this kind of goes into not just this book in particular, but the whole sort of field of mycology. And I think we've both been sort of absorbed in a bunch of... Um, the internet is like a vast source of this stuff. There's like loads of videos and there's loads of, there's a sort of strange psychedelic perspectives. And then there's, yeah, there's so much. Um, and it made me think there's a kind of enchantment to the forms of noticing that are required to sort of do mycology. It's the people that are obsessed with it love going for walks and just they'll stop and like notice loads of things. It's a bit like bird watching or something, except for bird watching, like it happens and it's gone, whereas the mushroom is like there and you have to always be looking at the ground. Um, there's also a sort of collective, collector's impulse to it, and um, this idea that. Oh, it down. <laughs> um, yeah, there's this sort of. So I think you can look at it as like a collector's impulse, but also it's like a potential citizen sense. <coughs> you know, if people are like Instagramming about things they found, um, and obviously, um, as you've said, like we only understand a fraction of the world's mycological species. Um, and there's so much in this is sort of Beatrix Potter apparently discovered a few species of fungi, but she wasn't taken seriously by the Linnaean Society because she was a woman and an artist. Um, so I was thinking, how does this idea of like noticing, which is like a bottom up thing rather than a top down thing, um, how does it sort of as an intervention um, cut across often gendered um, divides within art and science and so not just gendered, but also just the art science divide itself? Um, I was wondering if people had any thoughts about that or in terms of their own practice or anyone here actually call themselves like a mycologist or someone that would, you know, if anyone wants to talk about citizen science generally in terms of um, taking photographs of things and uploading them and see what, what feedback you get. You know, like you might, I know people that will post things but anyone can, can anyone tell me what the species is um, and that itself. But yeah, 
that itself is like an act of science in a way, it's sort of discovery. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts? I wanted to, sorry, bring up uh, also in relation to Beatrix Potter, there's a scientist called Susan Simard. Okay. Um, and she was key in interpreting this idea of um, the communications that uh, mycelial mats have with other vegetable species. Mm. Um, and she was also, she was called a pseudoscientist and she was sort of yeah. considered like a bit of a crackpot because she she approached the subject in a very like caring and qualitative way. Mm. Um, and she, she discovered that um, birch and Douglas fir trees share carbon via mycelial oh. networks. Um, and yeah, she was also largely rejected and I think it's partly like her approach in not trying to like reduce uh, the science down to pure empiricism, but trying to make space for like uncertainty with that and mm-hmm. um, yeah, and like intimacy or something. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, across species. Yeah, it's, it just struck me that a lot of the sort of TED talks that I saw on this subject, they they, they both started with the speaker kind of telling about their childhood and how they fell in love with like the forest. Um, and it was like a kind of very like arresting thing because I've never seen that with a sciencey type like one before. It was sort of they weren't afraid to be seen as someone with like an affective relationship to their subject. Um, yeah, does anyone have any thoughts about this? Or indeed, does anyone themselves like do you go mushroom picking or take pictures of mushrooms or do you see yourself doing anything around this practice? Be interesting to hear. When I was, uh... Well, before a teenager, I used to hang out with some of the top biologists in Scotland. Wow. And I would go to international conferences when I was like eight or nine. My dad took me down to London to go to the <laughs> British Mycological Society conference. So I was a total Russian geek. Yeah. And I'd be out every Amazing. weekend. <laughs> a lot of that knowledge is gone because I was bullied so badly in school. <laughs> and I kind of quit that and got into art. But uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's really fascinating. Uh, subject. Mm. Is it just like that, that idea of like it is associated with like being some kind of outcast and being interested in this really niche thing, but actually it's something that suffuses everything. It's kind of yeah, or like people that that have this interest. I don't know if anyone's heard of the the Sheldrakes. So like the 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 dad is like a famous one, and then his son is a mycologist, and his other son is like a musician that makes music out of like samples of. I don't know, like wood scrapings, or like it's it's all very embedded in a similar thing. Um, but I love that there's this 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 sort of strange eccentrism. But that that is for me like that that is doing some kind of science, like listening to that and then having that um, recalibrated connection to to the environment. It's sort of this sort of strange. It's quite like it's a sort of disturbance of what you expect from music and what you expect from. Um, source materials or something it's like using it's not just field recordings it's actually like rubbing or using different senses to get that sound rather than just like passively standing there and recording yeah i'm, I'm interested in how the mushroom might be banned from a city so mm-hmm. they'll spray like Glasgow green or Kelvin grove to stop mycelium magic mushrooms coming up and huh. um, <coughs> you can't compost your own waste in your back garden kind of thing yeah and um, like that and at the moment they're getting rid of all the leaves yeah they can't be lying around the yeah. Yeah. but that is like all the raw materials yeah. for mushrooms and why 
in an urban setting, with their, can, the dark. the fear of that ever creeping in. Or yeah. Something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really feels like mushrooms are like a bit of a sort of projection of urban life, even through like the pacing of them. They're at such mm. a different pace, they're so slow, and like to see them, you have to be really slow, and you have to like go on slow walks and look at yeah. different places, and it's just like a total rejection of the city. Mm. And I think you only notice when you go looking like. You have to go so far out of the city to yeah. see like the more spouting because they just like they don't like the pollution, the closed spaces, and the concrete. And I find it really inspiring. Like there's a picture of one that bursts through some tarmac. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Who was it that was telling me that mushroom was the first thing to grow after? Is it Fukushima? Yeah. It's on the book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like super hardy. Is that the? And you sort of associate them with like edge stones and stuff. Yeah. Maybe somebody can tell us like what brought you here today. Like why are you so interested in mycology or are you like planning to maybe apply it to your own practice if you maybe you, some of your artists, maybe some of you are and maybe somebody can say why you're here. <laughs> I'm currently kind of obsessed with mycology. Um I uh I'm right now I'm working in conservation actually. And I, uh, yeah, my background is all over the place, but I, uh, I'm working right now with like a conservation volunteer organization, but, uh, and we held, like we had one of the UK's like top mycologists, um, come and do like a mycology course for us and like have, do, we actually did some citizen science. We did like a survey of mushrooms, um, by Greenock and we did, uh, since then I'm like, it's funny talking about like the difference between like urban zones. Cause I'm like all over the city, there's like shaggy, um, uh, uh, shaggy ink caps and all yeah. sorts of there's like they're definitely everywhere you know yeah. um but it's interesting because actually where i first got interested in mushrooms was kind of from mycelial mycelial design and especially like the idea of using them for construction mm-hmm. yeah. and like you can and you know like um moma in new york making like a three-story tower out of mycelia and and, yeah. and that connected to also like um like I, i'm sure a lot of people have read uh, peter volevin's um uh, the, hi- the hidden life of forests or the hidden life of trees. Yeah, yeah. Where I mean, I don't know that idea of like the the mushroom being the hidden force that um, is keeping uh, keeping competition low mm. in that ecosystem. That if there's not enough diversity, then it stands to be in danger because it needs like a diversity of species that can um, that it can function with. If it's a, if you have like a monocultured forest. Even though in some mushrooms, like, that's great for them. Like, for others, it'll be, you know, a, a hazard. So they'll keep the diversity up. Yeah, there's always a sort of question of balance and transfer. And I think they, they do just embody this, this interesting economy of energy. Like, if if there's one patch of them that are happy and another patch that aren't happy, then the happy patch will sort of give the nutrients. Yeah. There's a sort of balance. And mm-hmm. um, there is, like, that model of a sort of, unconditional care or something but then also and also they they're kind of like interesting something quite violent they can like crack into rocks or like mm. eat insects almost they also or, trap worms uh, trap, yeah. yeah underneath the the ground they have this i think is it what is it honey i can't remember what it was the the honey, yeah they have the this like yeah. system that like because the worms are i mean i don't know about this enough but the worms are like trying to get the nutrients so they have a system they just catch the worm it's super violent. Honey mushrooms are parasitic, so they um, 
actively like take yeah mm. like marigolds do as well they take from other they use the fungi network to take steel carbon from other plants and stuff mm. so that's quite interesting mm. it's not all good <laughs> it's not it's not utopic it's all yeah. <laughs> which brings me to the question um about the dark and dark mycology um so obviously we we can't can't the title is a kind of uh, like a reference to timothy morton's dark ecology um but i was wondering how everyone sort of perceived that dark did you expect it to be did anyone have any preconceptions about what we meant by that or um what do you think the dark is? Is it kind of acknowledging that kind of shadow side of like nature um, and, you know, getting away from sort of aestheticizing something as like a pure, symbi- like pure sort of holistic ecosystem where everyone's happy and connected and da da da, like, you know, acknowledging that to con- continue that there has to be violence, there has to be compromise, um, some sacrifices within like the, the food chain or whatever. Um, so yeah, I was going to ask about that first before the next part of the question. If anyone had any ideas about the word dark in dark mycology? <laughs> or if you think, or I guess how this kind of approach that looks more at these sort of underground things might differ from your traditional idea of ecology as sort of green mm. and to do with landscape. Um, do you see them as different or like how are they connected for you? I suppose my interpretation of the dark part of it is um, it's that phrase as well that I think Donna Haraway has which is staying with the trouble or staying with the negativity of maybe climate change and how okay it may be hard but like um, staying with the dark side of that is also a good thing um, and just keeps us constantly aware of how we're uh, connected to it and how we can yeah come together to change it. Mm -hmm. And that's an interesting point as well in, in remembering that, um, and Anna Singh t- uh, touches on this as well, that the ruptures that have happened, some some of them are like irreversible, like you can't uh, get steeped in nostalgia for getting back mm-hmm. to nature and like getting back to how things should be. Mm-hmm. Because um, as you say, that like, you need the diversity and also human interference isn't going anywhere. So that idea of like learning to live with and using maybe models of mycology as a coping mechanism or a survival strategy is very important, I think. Yeah, I think that openness is important. Um, The fact that something that's dark isn't necessarily, like we can't apply a sort of light to it and illuminate and find its entire truth. And it gets back to what we were saying earlier about how this is not an exhaustible topic. This is like, this this will go, we're never going to completely understand mushrooms and maybe like acknowledging that dark part of our like epistemology or our approach to them is just as important and part of the knowledge is the not knowing it's the sort of the idea of like smelling something or like finding other affective or sensory ways of experiencing it and then recalibrating how we as humans exist in that environment and how we act um there was I went to a talk by someone who this completely different ecosystem, but she she would work with like crustaceans that would like dwell in the littoral zone where the tide would come coming in and out. So they would either be in the sea or washed up. And she worked with scientists and she was a poet and she she basically said how horrified she was that all the scientists would just like trudge you know, trudge around on the beach and not worry about what they were treading on and like they would obviously like, crush a lot of their subjects without really needing to. <laughs> Whereas she was like precariously and I thought that was kind of interesting that they both had this 
completely different experience of the environment and and hers was much more about being up close and being so like her whole body was aware of everything whereas the scientists were more about like sight and then like discerning from that which is kind of interesting as a sort of different types of knowledge um art and science um i guess connected to duck is sort of mycelium was obviously connected to, to waste and death mm. um the fact that if we didn't have mycelium then we'd be surrounded by dead animals dead plants dead bodies you know everywhere in a way because they they are what processes the sort of mulch um i guess do people i mean does our increasing understanding of this process alter how we define the limits of life and death and the value of life and the value of waste i think obviously with the anthropocene we can no longer assume that waste goes away there is no way anymore we know that it goes into the ocean or you know into our tap water or comes back and um does anyone have any thoughts on how my student sort of almost like that appreciation of the work it does in processing waste how that kind of changes our thoughts about the, the binary between the two this makes me think someone was telling me about um a landfill program recently i think where i don't know i don't know if someone's told about the program so i haven't seen it but it was it was some scientists going into a landfill where they kind of concreted over the top completely and they build these sites where they just concrete over because they concrete over it no oxygen can get yeah. in so therefore nothing grows in there so therefore the scientists could kind of cut down the top layer and go in and just pull out newspaper cuttings and things that were still that had not been yeah, decomposed and it's kind of like I guess that's that's our legacy essentially yeah. it's, it's kind of like <laughs> <a> monstrous <laughs> waste huge <laughs> amounts of waste I mean I hope that you know the, the plath poem isn't it where the mushrooms will inherit the earth yeah. but I guess they can't if we're going to concrete over everything and hide yeah. it <laughs> we're going to ruin our own ecosystem so <laughs> Although Basque, they did that, and what happens when you just get small leakages, and then so then when things start to de decompose, it's it's like nothing happens, but then it's an accelerated. So that's why you started to get massive sinkholes appearing because they'd kind of done that. They filled it with landfill, and then they filled concrete on the top. Mm. And I, I, I mean, I don't understand the the science behind it. But it basically, means that nothing decomposes, and all of a sudden it just. <laughs> the leakage and then you get this yeah. massive drop so then things start to collapse and sort of fold in on themselves also reminds me to the i think i put this on the reference uh but there's an artist who uh designed uh mass and suit i don't know mm -hmm. if some of you know about this and i think this is the first time that i thought about actually about how, how mycology and art can combine and i thought the, the project was was not so easy to understand or like to actually because the thought of like being eaten by a mushroom when you're dead to me sounds completely it's really disturbing and really scary and that's that's to me the, the dark side of the mushroom as well daddy like you find it in your house when it just pops out in your shower or yeah. like i don't know to me it gives me i don't know it gives me the shivers and it's a fear for me the mushroom but at the same time i see the hope on it as well and she did this like brilliant uh, she grew these mushrooms she cannot train this mycelium to eat parts of her body so she would like cut her nails or like part of her uh, skin so then she, <laughs> she trained them to eat her and then in this way she made this like mushroom burial suit that you can now buy and it's basically uh, like a full body suit with spores that once you're once you're dead it starts like actually eating your body and not very dark but it's it's a uh, it's apparently the most uh, sustainable way of uh, of being buried because even you know now we're full of chemicals uh, i've heard that even uh, worms don't want to eat us anymore <laughs> because we're just full of chemicals and even uh, when you have um 
what's it called when you have a decay and you put like the filling on your teeth or yeah. all these things that uh, when they actually evaporate they really when you when you burn it, it's full of chemicals so this is really the best way to go but just just the thought of it as like a mushroom eating your body <clears throat> yeah you know did that for me was like the beginning for me to like my relationship to my ecology and and just the really dark side of it which mm. is, yeah, that's my experience with it no, but, uh, sorry <laughs> Don't you think the fact that it scares you is like highlighting how isolated we are from mm-hmm. nature and sustainability yeah. in the first place? Like, I think it's not knowing as well. Scary. But do you think that it comes in like knowledge as well? Because like, there's a lot of kind of recent things that have been happening, like even since like the sequence in the human genome and like that, that completed in like 2003, and like this understanding that like a lot of our like genome is there's only like what like 20 23,000 they managed to actually have human genome and the rest of bacteria so that equates to something like 90% of us being like actual mm-hmm. like essentially like microbes or other mm-hmm. um, and it's that idea that um, maybe that or, like I don't know that kind of gets the fact that we like bleach our surfaces and ever we there's like this idea of cleanliness that is like this negative upon the fact that we probably share a lot of the environment within us. So it's like, where are the boundaries? The boundaries are super malleable. Mm -hmm. And that, I think that comes with maybe education, like, or like knowing that because until until you know that you can't fully understand that like, um, like not all bacteria is bad bacteria. <laughs> like we eat yogurt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe like the soup thing is a good thing because it kind of real. I don't know. I feel like conflicted with using the term like fuel. Like I feel like everyone's uh, like matter is seen as fuel, and that's something I dis disregard. But maybe it's it's like that kind of reversal is a good thing. That if you put this body on this suit on when you die, you're reasserting the fact that all you are is fuel that goes back into the cycle mm-hmm. and like uh, lessening the values that you put on yourself as a human, <coughs> as a thinking human who sees himself as outside of the systems of the world. Mm-hmm. And it's good to like put yourself down a bit <laughs> and like as like what will then feed something else. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. Donna Haraway at some point said, I'm not a post-humanist, I'm a compostist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I think it's quite apt in terms of, and they're even, um, uh, in terms of like what people do with their bodies when they die while we're on that topic, there are like human composting um, groups that like have this idea of like taking human bodies and turning it into compost, and it's like very poetic idea of like, Using your loved one's remains to then like grow a tomato garden or something. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite a Buddhist thing as well. That's why a lot of people yeah. maybe turn to Buddhism again, thinking about those themes and how Buddhism embraces death. And actually, one of the ways that they, um, when their loved ones die or people they know die, they put them out on the hill to decompose in the light of day, and they kind of embrace the idea of returning, not returning back to nature, like um, we're already part of it in that way as well. Um, yeah, I think this concept was um, when we were maybe like, even like in ancient times when we were more connected to nature, was actually kind of embraced. Because like even in Greek mythologies, the um, 
a time called Zoe, which is like life that continues over life. So like the energy that actually continues after when a body when we die. Well, they yeah they actually they mention it in like um how like you have grapes and then the grape dies and we make them into wine mm-hmm. <laughs> and then the life continues through the wine and then we drink it and then that continues into us and we die. <laughs> like that kind of um, ever like continuing life like through different lives <laughs> it's interesting yeah I was feeling like because you were saying the mushroom suit is the dark side of mycology mm-hmm. I was thinking about that more being like the bright side of mycology and then us being the sort of dark the bright side of mycology is like fixing mm-hmm. and I think like yeah I guess I wouldn't see that as a dark thing and uh, like one of the things I was noticing recently is like, uh, I guess like agriculture is really destructive, and sheep, like too many sheep in the UK is like really destructive. And then you go to the sheep fields, and they're like, oh, sheep poo, and because of that, they're all full of mushrooms. And I think like the sort of human side of that is quite dark and like destroying the planet through like too much using of the world. And mushrooms are like the light at the end of the tunnel, like the bright stuff sort of shooting up out of all this waste that we're making. I think it's interesting because we're like constantly going back to this dichotomy and this idea that it's like light and dark but also like human in nature and I think like you know there's a lot of work being done to kind of deconstruct that dichotomy and I think like our ecological future at least for our species not be fine but like for ours I think really depends on kind of putting that idea aside that like there's this separation it's interesting because all these ideas about like interacting with mushrooms and being digested by them kind of helps with that a bit, like mm-hmm. the re-embracing this idea yeah. that there's not that separation. But a thing that I think mycology also does, or, well, not directly mycology, but I think in general, people have this view that humans are this negative force in the environment, which they aren't always. Um, and for example, something like trees are always a positive force. But then if you go through the history of like, uh, if you go through the, you know, the archeological record, there is a time um, when, when trees first developed wood when they were essentially the humans of the time <clears throat> because nothing could break down the lignin. Mm. Uh, the world was covered in dead trees. <laughs> it was this It was this disturbance, you know, just yeah. like humans are essentially like when we come up with a new technology, it's a disturbance and it takes time for ecology to adapt to that. Mm. And mushrooms mm. were the adaptation. Fungi became the adaptation that allowed, and there's, you know, talking about like paving over the earth, like, there are the layers of earth that cover the dead trees that became, you know, the coal that we burn. (laughs) But it's this interesting, you know, like the thing, the trees that are now so fundamental to the way that we see ecology now Mm -hmm. and these systems, they (coughs) were the problem. And I think that that brings hope to the idea of that dichotomy that like, we're just new to the scene, you know, (laughs) these disturbances don't have to stay that way. Mm -hmm. But do you not think that's a dangerous idea because you were talking about geological time changes over geological time mm-hmm. and we are living in a time scale that's like an eggshell on that to like say that these i'm not saying that you are saying that these things were okay but it's like like oh we're we're humans like we're still learning or that we can develop alongside these problems naturally well i think it's a super slippery slope i think you're absolutely right i think it's dangerous to assume that like you know we have the time for us to recover from the disturbance. I think what I see it as important as 
is once you accept ecological responsibility and you have the overwhelming guilt that comes with that. Yeah. I think that's paralyzing for people. I think it's paralyzing and it keeps people out of engaging with sustainable yeah. practices. It's this feeling like we're this evil. And it almost gets into this almost Christian idea of like the, the original sin. I think we have to like dispel it and be like, no, it's the nature of this behavior, but that us in and of ourselves aren't, you know, we're humans aren't evil by that. I guess just philosophically, I see it as a tool. Mm -hmm. I can see what you're saying, but I mean, at the same time, we are really screwing up the planet. And like we have, I mean, the thing, the problem, exactly what you were saying, that we are, we're acting so fast. I was talking to a scientist today and she was saying, you know, extinction is a natural process. Of course that happens, but we're, you know, anthropogenic climate change, we've accelerated that to such a huge rate that stuff can't keep up. The whole thing in the paper the other day that it's going to take three to seven million years for animals to evolve enough to recreate the species that we've lost. I completely agree that's a really paralyzing thing. And I think there has to be some kind of hope in this this kind of despair. I definitely agree with that, but I don't think we can compare us to trees because I agree that's geological time. But I do see what you're saying about the hope and the despair thing. And that it's paralyzing when you, again, it's a hyper object to say, you know, three to seven million years, it's just like something so big and remote yeah. that people go, well, I can't affect me changing that, therefore I'm going to remove myself from it. Um, so I think it's kind of, it's a, it's a weird mix of kind of accepting this guilt and then looking at what we have around us and then looking at what we can do in that process, I guess. A couple of um, references that I thought of earlier when you were talking about stories. And um, George Monbiot talks a lot about how we need alternative stories to imagine. Like we need to present people with a, a possibility of how things can change rather than just bang on about how things need to change. And also Mark Fisher's Capitalist Realism, he famously wrote that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. Mm-hmm. I think everyone will probably enjoy those. Yeah, which is definitely, so it's kind of like, how do we get away from this idea of this, this sustainability as the appropriate, because if you say something sustainable, you're still sort of speaking in almost like capitalist feedback tones. Um, and it is, I mean, I think like George Monbiot is a really interesting example because he's someone that writes in The Guardian, has a column, he's constantly posting, and it's a sort of polemical journalism that's looking at, um, it's always pushing against. So the timescales are interesting, like the, 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 the quickness in which the plastic straw thing became, like, you know, like that, that obviously came from like an, an, an aesthetic source, like presumably it was like Blue Planet 2, um, and someone like Michael Gove happened to be watching it and was like, I'm going to push this through, like it's such a sort of, there's like a superficiality but also sometimes like the way that these little I guess like fissures happen in the sort of the the, the everyday like the kind of the, the, what we take as our normal life and what's acceptable suddenly everyone's like looking at straws as like what they actually are is almost like this access to a hyper object you're seeing plastic you're seeing the sort of albatross photos the stomachs and you know you're seeing all these things and just a drink straw um, and it is kind of like if we're telling stories about this constantly through art, through science, through like public engagement, is there, you know, the ricochet effect of that is maybe what we need. It's that combination of like the micro and macro. Um, but I think, and yeah, and the, the, the Fisher things are interesting because it is like, we need to stop thinking in apocalyptic terms, even though that's obviously what we're kind of working with because it's not the apocalypse, it's just the end of humanity on the planet. Like we're killing the planet, but we're gonna die before the planet will. So it's kind of like, how do we look at, um, the life, the sort of scale of different species and maybe find different ways of being through that, which is why my series is interesting because it's kind of its own deep time, but we maybe can't read it in the way that we can read rocks and fossils because it's sort of 
it works in such a strange, slow way. Um, yeah. I don't know if anyone with more expertise on that. Uh, just another thing I was thinking of earlier that Ellen's really mentioned that I, I haven't read all the book, but she talks about salvage. Mm, yeah. And I was thinking about the comparison, like everyone, you were talking about comparing my ceiling to the internet. But what I keep thinking about is labour and how capitalism is so dependent on female, mm-hmm. predominantly, care and labour and how that's like an undercurrent and how capitalism has got to where it is now, but it's not really addressed in terms of solutions. Yeah. And what if, for example, the way, the burden of dealing with the environment is more on women because women have to deal with the domestic stuff yeah. and the choices about recycling and what products to buy? It's like a whole other thing we definitely need to look at um, and how and obviously how it connects to reproduction and, and choices about having children and stuff. Um, but yeah, there's, there's definitely a whole subset about how like feminism has to deal with ecology because ecology is putting on women maybe more responsibility and the home versus like the outside sphere and stuff. Yeah. The straw thing you mentioned is really interesting because uh, it's like obviously a good thing that we're using less plastic straws. Yeah. But I had a situation today where like some of the people I work with, the only way they can drink is through plastic straws because yeah. they have accessibility needs. Totally, yeah. And then she like forgot her straw and my workplace didn't have any straws. Yeah. So I was like, oh no, you're not going to be able to drink anything all day. Yeah. Because <laughs> it was like, and it turned into like a big issue the other way around, but like, mm-hmm. I think you can't like put out these blanket things and like this is going to be a good thing. Yeah. And I know that's like super off topic for mushrooms. No, but it's <laughs> I know. Like, we sort of got very present to me today. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it is, this is the reason that we can't think of ourselves as like pure just because we're doing things like banning straws because there is no universal solution. We need to talk about differences in terms of like ableism, class, gender, like that stuff is all really important on like a daily basis. Um, yeah, I mean, I kind of was going to ask a question about transition, which is used in the energy humanities to describe this sort of existential stage we're at and what we've been talking about in terms of, okay, so now we've recognised that we're running out of fossil fuels um, and we don't know what our next collective courses of action can be. Um, and how we're dealing with crisis. So Singh puts it, I make disturbance a beginning that is an opening for action. Disturbance realigns possibilities for transforming encounter. Um, And it's that phrase transforming encounter that I'm interested in. Um, Because this is really just crystallising what we just said, but I guess, does anyone have any thoughts on whether that's a utopian statement or how, how do they react to this idea of disturbance as an opening? in terms of politics, but also our daily sense of um, sort of personal situations to do with e- ecological choices. Um, so yeah, it's a question about disturbance really, and transition. Have you guys seen a um, recent <coughs> summit in Denmark called um, uh, P4G? I don't think so. Like no. a project. It's, this is, if you're depressed, this is actually helpful. <laughs> Especially like revolving up around this whole like, issue on sustainability. Yeah. Because it's, um, it's gathering all the leaders around the world. So, like, the Prime Minister's president of like, some countries came. And it's um, about like global goals that we should be reaching for to actually save the environment. And they invited all these like people, these. Um, working on a global scale to change like big companies to do things in a more like 
sustainable ways to give them like support and things like that. Mm. So in a sense, like I think because they were saying that um, about five years ago that if you approach like um, big companies and talk about sustainability, they'll be like saying this is not <laughs> this is not like my concern. Yeah. That's for like for politicians or something like mm-hmm. that. But um, it's actually kind of promising to see like now that um, I guess like because we are becoming more aware, especially with like what the scientists are proposing and telling us, blah, blah, blah. Um, we're actually wanting to do something about it. And, um, and I think that's more important like for people to become more aware of like what they're doing to the environment. So that they can actually do something and they can actually support like causes like this more actively, like to make um, not using plastic straws not cool, you know, mm-hmm. like even little things like that. I think this helps a lot. Yeah, it's interesting how it plays out in a corporate context um, in the last few years. There was an email exchange I recently read in an anthology that basically um, the, the people were asked to respond to um, when the Guardian editor, um, I think it was back in. 2015 and 2013 when he left he said that he was disappointed with his own record on climate change as an editor and he was like I think moving forward we need to really put it front of the agenda and so like the editor of this anthology was like I want you know people to respond to that article and one one guy just sent this email exchange in his company it was basically like um the first email was the the manager being like yeah really we're going to start looking at sustainability and climate you know really look at ecological practice and the thing and then it basically unfolded his way of do- dealing with that was like just making stuff redundant because as our chief resource you're obviously like the, the biggest expenditure of a company and the most consuming thing so his whole thing about being ecological which was dressed up in all the language and it took place over several emails was just like making people redundant and using like res- I guess like resources to justify why he was laying people off like it's really interesting how any any discourse we try and push through is going to get co-opted back in um, which is what we were saying earlier but it's kind of a funny example of it's like a it's a it's a sad example but hopefully one that we're, makes us aware of the, the way that these discourses kind of mm-hmm. feed back between yeah and similar to i guess like the thing people say the best ecological thing you can do is just not have children yeah yeah because yeah. That's, you know you can you know you can change your car to electric you can make your house green you can do this but your kids are gonna fuck the air <laughs> sorry <laughs> you know like so yeah. you don't have kids it's the yeah. biggest thing to do yeah. And I guess push further forward to suicide as well. That's the most ecological When you say like, I don't know, mess the earth up, is it messing the earth up just for us? I'm just coming back to the yeah. idea of like, we're going to kind of say we go extinct or whatnot, or like life will still kind of find the way or continue, or who's making the judgment of what's messed up or not messed up? Like, is all the kind of is all of this for us ultimately? Yeah. Like yeah. saving species or kind of create, it's all essentially for us to, to still kind of keep mm-hmm. on going. Is that how people see it or kind of in a more. I don't know, I guess I'm coming, from an ecolog- I'm coming from an eco critical perspective, so I'd say eco, not eco. So we shouldn't see it for mm-hmm. us, we should see it. But it is a big argument at the moment about like what species to save. It's like, you know, do you save. And this again was in the article about, about animal loss, that like, you know, yeah, you've yeah. got two elephants. Uh, do you really prioritise saving those elephants and you have 100 shrews that are different species but they're all kind of shrew does it really matter if you lose one kind of why are you and then also again 
going back to what you said about, about bacteria and things, um, about, you know, we got rid of smallpox. Should we have done that? That was like, you know, a life yeah. form on this earth. <laughs> Again, like, why did we do that? So it is, yeah, there's, it's What's of kind of, yeah, more valid than another form yeah. of life? So say like, I don't know, elephants go, tigers go, but we have loads more rats and seagulls. Yeah. Is that necessarily good or bad, or like, like there's no like, it's, it's not like a. I mean, so that's kind of like I don't know. Ferrari because it's the elephants aren't in like really selfish. Yeah, they're not that. I'm more like like the rhino say. I'm sure it does more than just eat grass, but there's like an argument. There's an argument that like because the rhino is a grazer, it doesn't have this like big established effect with other yeah. species. Say so, it's a bit like all right, cool. The rhino can go. Just, mm, but yeah. if it's bad to look at it that kind of utilitarianly like does this serve a purpose for us if it does okay keep it mm -hmm. if it doesn't it can go but but I had a conversation today about actually say about why people go for charismatic megafauna why yeah. they say these things like rhinos but that actually in a way maybe it's a good thing because if you say maybe not a rhino I don't know how about rhino but if you save a rhino you have to save everything mm. that mm. the rhino feeds on which yeah. trickles right down and that's better than going let's save this small flea that you know is then yeah. <laughs> growing up instead so mm. But again, yeah, what, what, as to why you I, save it and what you prioritise and who it's for, yeah. that's different. I mean, it might be a dystopian world where it's full of just seagulls and rats, but it's one way of like, <laughs> if there's a way to get mushroomy, like mushroomy about it in any kind of way, the stuff that kind of works with us. Trash animals. Or yeah, animals. the same kind of thing. It's like describing them as animals. like weeds. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like the weedy animals that yeah. work with us that are kind of like Process us in a way that or... they, mm. she put it like they don't play well with others. Yeah. Kind of, so yeah, seagulls mm. or rats or mice or, mm -hmm. I think. And there's like a few speculative zoology lineages of that, that, mm. okay, if we do go, there's loads of rats and seagulls, but they, again, split off and diverge and mm. you've got big pats of rats hunting giant rabbits. In yeah, like yeah, yeah. And just, like, the seagulls don't actually this. exist, so there is not a bird called a seagull. There's a herringgull, <laughs> a blackbackgull, a less blackbackgull, I guess, so it's that kind of thing mm. in itself as well, I suppose. Which Yeah, but then like, there's loads seagull. of gulls, we generally all call them seagulls. And then come like a meme. No, which one should we... Which is, seagull, which is the best seagull? Which is the best seagull? But it goes, <laughs> it goes back <laughs> to like, <laughs> then for like the landfill stuff as well, which is like, just exciting that you see these pockets and shifts change, that like landfills, when we stop burning landfills, Landfills, you get tons of seagulls there, like mm. eating and having like a good time in the landfill. And if that's like, I don't know, can we? Is that like a good new new environment, or is that a bad? Like, but who's placing that judgment? Ultimately, it's us. There's no exterior thing that's saying this is a good like environment and this is a bad one, or this is a. Mm -hmm. I think that is part of the problem, though, that human beings we don't actually know what a healthy environment yeah, is yeah. anymore. Like what you were saying about diversity. Diversity does seem to be the most healthy kind of environment and and like if I go and like over here people, you know, going up into the highlands are like, Oh look at that beautiful natural monocrop <laughs> that for them is and, but oh, but you know that there'd be maybe like a third of the species living in that. Yeah yeah. That there would be if there was many different kinds of tree and it is like, yeah, it's like, the, actually, I do think there is some truth about, surely what we need to aim for is like, uh, just a healthy, diverse environment, yeah. and, mm -hmm. and that's not what we're doing. Yeah, it may not yeah, look like, what we think looks yeah, like a kind of healthy it, one. Does it, we don't really have a coding for it or something about how we should feel and like yeah. experience or look, because um, that's just been wiped somehow from the collective memory.
there was, Perhaps, yeah. I think someone was saying that there was more diversity yeah, in the back gardens than kind of yeah, the Scottish yeah. Highlands. There's more <laughs> stuff going on there in these kind of weedy, trashy places. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. kind of, oh, do, do you think it's as well because like bacteria and um, and microbes can evolve a, a lot slower than we can, but they they can evolve too. It's like me and Becca have been working with this these people these people in lab in Edinburgh and they were kind of they were just explaining certain form strains of bacteria that are evolving to like for example within the um where was it the, the, the reactors at Chernobyl yeah there's this bacteria adapting to live within that mm -hmm. climate that we can never even imagine living within but something like uh, what 30 years to us is like 400 years to a tiny microbes so it's just very very different time scales but um but i feel like they can adapt in ways that we can't maybe because they're working on much smaller scale yeah. and also just that idea that um we're very close to not very close but we're close to fungi evolutionary as well um because we shared a common ancestor and we diverged from them much later than we diverged from the plant kingdom um and essentially what happened is that the our, our ancestor decided to become singular and digest and absorb food and then digest it, whereas fungi do the opposite. They they digest and then absorb. And that potentially offers them greater abilities to adapt and change and to to uh, move and work collectively and symbiotically. Um, and yeah, timescales within that are just like yeah, and relative as well. There's no good or bad. It's heterotopic, not utopic, yeah. maybe. I feel like something that I always think about when I'm in discussions like this is there's a lot of question, especially in the world of conservation, but like, oh, what should we decide, this or that, this or that? And like, I think the one of our problems and probably the root of our problems is the idea that we have this choice. I think the, the hubris, the, this idea that like, and, and I think we're probably not going to solve our ecological problems until we've given up that power and realize that, you know, the system is, I mean, we, we've tried to simplify systems so that we could understand them instead of accepting the fact that we're not going to understand them, you know, and so we'll have a monocultured forest because we can't understand all the pieces to a more yeah. complex forest. And I think, you know, there's always going to be more species than we'll ever be able to know, you know, and so some of it. It, going back to precarity, like in, in, in the writing, I think, you know, accepting precarity is going to be important to like letting ecology function properly rather than making all these little decisions of species versus. Yeah. Which is, <clears throat> so we're, we're too busy playing the part of like, we're the decides we're the kind of gardeners of this. Yeah. This we got to let go. <laughs> but it's, it's really tricky though to sort of like unlearn all those tropes. Um, I mean, like at my age, I'm not particularly old or anything, but I'm I'm finding it hard to sort of unlearn certain things that I've been like told as sort of fact. And I'm wondering why I didn't know about any of this stuff in this book till now, and why it's like not in schools. And like, mm -hmm. yeah, that's like a major reason why I'm here and like want to talk to people about it because. I just don't understand why personally it's taken like this long and obviously that's I'm not like just blaming the system or the curriculum or whatever and it's due with me and like how I research or whatever but yeah I just think that's a kind of massive problem like 
what you were talking about, like illuminating the dark bits. It's like things have the light cast on them that are just like shouldn't have. <laughs> yeah. And there's a lot of stuff that's just been like left in the dark that I find like absolutely remarkable like that it has been. But I guess that's kind of touched on the book though with the whole sort of idea about that obsession with categorization and ranking and that cleanliness of sort of being able to pigeonhole things, which I think is something like, I guess I come from an art background and I've kind of become increasingly disturbed over the last few years about how tightly art wants to categorise things, like to extreme levels of pigeonholing of kind of entire practices, which I guess something that science is under pressure to do as well with kind of funding and stuff like tying everything um, up into neat practice. And I really loved what she was talking about in the book about the transformative encounters. But I just wonder, like, particularly within education and stuff, and again, pressures with kind of performance and exams and again, categorisation and ranking and things. It kind of goes around in a circle, categorisation and ranking yeah. sort of thing. And, and, and I'm wanting to understand a really clean hole how that doesn't actually leave space for the idea of transformative encounters. And also, I guess the idea that then that also goes back to ideas of speed that we were talking about and kind of zooming in and out of speed where transformative encounters can be really, really immediate or they can be very, very slow. And, and how do you allow time for both types of kind of transformative, like, or uh, allow people to be open to really immediate transformative encounters, but also to remain open for kind of ones that take a lot longer and the idea that maybe education is not so much built around that as it used to be or something. I think I was really interested that in the book, it kind of was a bit of a light bulb moment for me to think about. Mm. And also what um, Singh says in relation to science as translation in that sense as well, because translation, like, um, and how she talks about the need to decolonize science and look at post-colonial theory in relation to that, because then you can allow for fallout and allow for things that can't be classified into this very, like, um, cellular striated space and that that presumes objectivity as well and actually doesn't allow for the patchiness and the realities of science and and especially um human interaction as well with with those disciplines i think that's a really good point you could tell that discussion was just not gonna end i know i felt kind of bad having to put an end to that really intense conversation yeah, it was really nice to hear the different voices coming in from the audience members and their different backgrounds and areas of expertise. Um, I think everyone really enjoyed this part so much. I can't even get over the idea of a world full of seagulls and rats, seriously. Sorry, I'm a bit obsessed today with seagulls, but that part of the conversation like, actually brought some like real tension about which species should or shouldn't be protected. And just the concept of being the species that decide to have control over over this is so anthropocentric yeah somehow i think there needs to be a process of unlearning going on in order to continue our survival along with survival of other species um i guess the current situation that we're at the moment proves that we're not really at the end of, uh, sorry at the top of the pyramid and that there's a price to human disturbance on our natural environment yeah totally i guess there's so much there to learn from mushrooms and mycology is a subject that is actually so popular that this event was sold out. So that led us to organize a second session, 
which we'll be sharing with you on our biosystem Start Mycology 2. And for the meantime, just take care of each other and see you on the next episode. And if you fancy making some of the mushroom pate we had, I'll be happy to lend a few tips. <laughs> see you soon. Thank you.